From an Iraq war cover-up to towns ravaged by opioids to the roots of our modern immigration crisis, Embedded explores what's been sealed off and undisclosed. NPR's original investigative podcast reveals why these stories and the people behind them matter. Listen to the Embedded podcast only from NPR. My name is Caroline O'Donoghue, and my book is The Rachel Incident. I've been hearing about Caroline O'Donoghue's new novel, The Rachel Incident, since last fall, so I knew I needed to speak with her when Pub Day finally rolled around. Highly regarded by other authors, publishing reps, and editors, The Rachel Incident is a retrospective following of 20-something Rachel and her best friend James as they figure out how to make their way in Ireland in the early 2010s. I recently spoke with Caroline O'Donoghue about coming of age in a socially conservative Ireland, some of the autobiographical aspects of the novel, and how the book might be received by American audiences. I'm Beth Golay from KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network. This is Marginalia. Okay, so the Rachel incident has been on my radar for a long time. A friend who is a rep at Knopf told me about the novel toward the end of 2022. And then we spoke with Jenny Jackson about her book, Pineapple Street, and she was especially excited for the release. And my copy of the book also included a letter to the reader from Jenny, who interrupted several Thanksgiving dinners to talk to her bosses and colleagues (laughs) about your book because she had just read it like that day. So does it feel to you like it's a date that finally showed up? Because that's how it feels to me. (laughs) It's, um, do you know how it feels to me, actually? So, um... The Rachel Incident is my adult debut in the US, but it's my sixth book overall. So I wrote a trilogy for teenagers, which is available over there. And uh, my first two books came out with um with a UK publisher, which haven't been printed. And how I feel is like I um hope to be doing this job when I'm in my 80s. You know, I I really want to have a Margaret Atwood run. And in within that time, I know I will have books that are well received poorly received books that I will struggle to write books that I will you know be easier or whatever books that will take a lot of research books that will take none and um the Rachel incident as I said is my sixth book for me it's like so far anyway it's like oh the universe is just throwing you one you know this is like (laughs) this book was a joy to write it's been a joy to promote and it's been a joy to watch people receive it in this like really effusive, lovely way. I'm having, it's like my easy baby, you know, it's like, <laughs> oh, she never cries, you know. <laughs> so maybe we should give our listeners, you know, a, a glance of what the Rachel incident is about. Do you, do you have an elevator speech for it or do you have a description for our listeners? Sure. Yeah. So um, the Rachel incident is told from the perspective of Rachel, who is a, you know, a 30 something year old journalist who's living in London. She's married. She has a baby. Everything's fine for her. Um, We meet her on this one kind of Christmas party that's been arranged for Irish expats. She's she's an Irish woman. And um, she runs into somebody from her college days, just an acquaintance who believes, as many people in her life once believed many years ago when she was a student in Cork City, that she was having an affair with her English professor, a man called Dr. Byrne. And so the Rachel incident at first kind of invites you to believe that this is another novel about a woman who slept with her English professor. You know, it's a a hollowed path for literature, I think. But the, the reality of the actual incident is uh, much naughtier, more complex and more distressing than that. And we kind of live through that life 
and that bank of memories with her and particularly the memories she spent with her best friend, James Devlin, who she um, lived with through that time. To me, the Rachel incident is a love story. It's not necessarily in the traditional romantic love sense, though there are some touches of that in there, but a deep and lifelong love between best friends. Can you talk to me about Rachel and James's friendship? Of course, yeah. The way I sort of describe Rachel and James, and it is kind of inspired by a real friendship of mine that is still very dear to me with my friend Ryan. And the details of how those two characters met are very similar to how we met. We we met working in retail over a Christmas shift, you know. And um, I wanted to talk about that feeling that you get. And I think you only get it a few times in your life and you can never prepare for it where it's like, you know, it's the version of like, a soldier in an old timey movie seeing a girl across a bar and then nudging his friend and saying, I'm going to marry that girl one day. And then he does, you know, and those people who like, they completely transfix you with their energy and their verve and, and they just, you meet them and you know, you have to do anything you can just to be friends with them. And I think that's a, a very common story and a very romantic one. And it was certainly how I felt when I met Ryan and that's certainly how Rachel feels when she meets James the kind of specifics of her and James are that you know, she's somebody who she grew up in a very upper middle class way, but because of the financial recession um, has, you know, her family has fallen on hard times, which is kind of a very private shame for them. And James's reality is that he is a gay man who isn't out yet, even though it's kind of everyone's sort of like, well, wh- why isn't he out? We all know, you know, he's one of those people where people feel very smug about saying, well, we all know, you know, and um their love for each other is built out of like a kind of a, you know, a real playfulness and a real, you know, just wanting to have a good time and being 21 years old, but also a a deep sense of care for one another too. You know, I did notice your mention of your friend Ryan in the acknowledgements, a friend who shares things in common with James, and you even acknowledge nights stealing drinks at the Brog and it's also, mm-hmm. you know, such a memorable scene in the book. Do I dare ask if if there's any other autobiographical moments? There's some, yeah. Like um, the the plot, utterly fictitious. All of the characters, utterly fictitious. So the book opens on um, a kind of a declaration from Rachel, which is, you know, I I never wanted to write a book. You know, it's her saying, you know, I I know all journalists say that, but for me, it's true. You know, I first got involved with bookmaking at the age of 21 and I've had no interest in being involved with them in any way since. And which, which I'm quite proud of because it serves you. Oh, something, something scandalous is going to happen in the book world and you're holding a book and like, Ooh, (laughs) Um, what I enjoy about that is because for me, I don't know if you're like this, but when I'm reading a book, it doesn't matter who it's from, whether it's like Evelyn Waugh or some like random debut novelist who's just come out, I'm reading the book and I'm also Googling them. And I'm also reading about them and their lives and their interviews that they've done. And then when I finish the book, I listen to every podcast about the book and I get obsessed and then I move on. And I knew that like immediately you would see this, you know, thing at the start and like, okay. And then you'd see on the inner flap, like, okay, well, this author has written five books. So clearly this is not a memoir. And then as you go forward into the opening chapters, if you were, for example, to either know about me or Google me, you would be like, okay, well, you know, this girl grew up in Cork. 
she moved to London in 2011. She's this and this and this. And there's all these kind of autobiographical details that me and Rachel have in common. And I really wanted to play with the reader there and sort of dare them to believe how much of this could be true. Because I think it's, there's an old adage in women's fiction where it's like, oh, everyone thinks that women just can't make things up. And <laughs> it was fun to subvert that and be like, here's all these things that seem very close to my life, but are also completely made up. And I just kind of want to drive people mad with that a bit. <laughs> <laughs> now, I really don't want to spoil anything. So you're welcome to tell me we're not talking about anything I ask. But I want yeah. to ask about abortion in Ireland in the 2010s and the immense yeah. cost, literally and emotionally, of having mm-hmm. an abortion during that time. Can you talk a little bit about this cost? Of course. Yeah. So, um, wow, where to begin? So I've... um. I've, I, I'm kind of obsessed with this, and I think all Irish novelists and Irish sort of creatives of my age and older are a bit obsessed with this. In that, like, we grew up in an Ireland that, you know, was defined by its kind of very recent conservatism. So, abortion wasn't legal in Ireland until 2018. Um, gay marriage wasn't legal in Ireland until. 2015 gay sex acts were illegal until the early 90s it was impossible to get contraception unless you were a married person had prescribed from your doctor until the late 80s you know we are really divorced until 1995 like we are really behind on um huge social laws the kind of laws that create societies and culture and that societies and culture always respond to and that's a funny atmosphere to grow up in. But what also is funny about it is that it's also a Western civilization and a modern one. And we were receiving all the same culture that you guys were receiving. So, you know, that kind of, I always think of that sort of naughties kind of raunch culture thing where, you know, I was 14 and I'd seen Paris Hilton sex tape, you know, or, or whatever, um, or the kind of the ferocious paparazzi shots of Lindsay Lohan, Nicole Richie, you know, all that culture and so it's a weird thing to get the cultural artifacts of the modern world while growing up in a world that is still incredibly repressive and conservative in terms of especially sexuality. And I think the crown jewel in that whole treasure chest is abortion laws because you cannot grow up as a young woman in Ireland and not think about sex and not think about what would happen if you got pregnant and how you would get an abortion and how you would find the money for that and how you would travel to England for that and how dangerous it could be. Like it's a terrifying concept to come of age sexually within. And I I really feel for the amount of American women who are experiencing that same terror now. Throughout the book, James slowly comes to terms with his sexuality and it's It's really a long process for him. So do you think his journey to self-acceptance was made hard by living in Cork, Ireland at the same time that you're talking about? I wonder about this. And myself and Ryan talk about this a lot, too, because Ryan came out late. He came out even later than James did. And whether it's an Irish thing. But then I talk to other friends, to to British friends or American friends, people who didn't grow up in big coastal cities or whatever. um, And they're like, yeah, in 2011 or 10, it was like that. It was like, technically, there was nothing wrong with being gay. And there was no active laws persecuting you or anything. And you couldn't lose your job, technically speaking, if you were gay. But we didn't know anyone who was out. Like, there was there was a couple of people that, who you kind of knew or knew to see. And who would, you know, there was maybe one gay bar. But I remember growing up and the gay life being framed as very much, oh, it's a very sad life. It's a very lonely life. And um 
yeah, it was very, it was very framed that context. And I think a lot of the queer friends I have now, they, they always talk about that moment of feeling like, oh, maybe, maybe not necessarily anything terrible will happen to me, but I'll be marooned in this island of loneliness and homophobic jokes. And I think that was everywhere. I mean, I feel like it's quite, it's quite recent that we've reached this place of, of greater acceptance, don't you? I think so. I want to ask about craft because some parts of the book go moment to moment, but other parts skip ahead, you know, a few years. When you sat down to write this, how did you plan out sections that you'd take a close look at versus a wider lens? Um, I don't, it was all very instinctual, you know, which is an annoying piece of feedback to get. I know it was not very planned out. It was not planned out on a scene to scene level, which some books that I've written in the past have been. But what was really important to me with Rachel was it, that it was a past tense novel and that it was the first novel that I'd written in the past tense. And what that does, I think, is that you are slowly finding out, you're kind of like figuring out the Rubik's Cube of like, okay, we know something terrible happened, but what was it? And we also know that Rachel is fine now. You know, she's she's you know 35 or whatever. She's got a kid on the way. She seems happy in her marriage and her career. She seems like she has a pretty full life. So it's not so bad that it ruined her life, but it's so bad that it's left her with lots of feelings of shame. And so we go through the novel with that. And what I like about that is if you were living moment to moment with Rachel as she experiences all the terrible things that she experiences in the Rachel incident, you would find the book incredibly depressing and it would be very morose to go through and she would seem miserable. But because she's looking back as somebody who's fine, it gives her this vibe of like, oh, you know, it was hard. It was tough, but I was having a lot of sex and I was, you know, <laughs> I was and I looked great and my hair was shiny kind of thing. And it, I wanted to sort of encourage people to look back on their own youth with a greater deal of forgiveness and compassion for the young idiot they used to be, you know? Well, and hindsight is such an important concept in the novel because do you think it was critical for choosing not only how, but even if or when to tell a story with hindsight? Because as you mentioned, we know Rachel is fine. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, um, as I mentioned to you earlier, like it was, it was um, you know, talking about the specifics of, you know, noughties or 2010s culture in Ireland and that kind of thing. And, and the fact that enough time has now passed since you know, that that very specific time period of the economic recession and all these kinds of stuff. Uh, enough time has passed for it to be reasonably called a time period and therefore this to be a period novel. And um, it's interesting now as like, you know, like Rachel, I'm in my 30s, I'm about to be married. I'm, I hope to start a family in the next few years. And I find diagnostic nostalgia very interesting not looking back on a time period and saying, wasn't it great and didn't we have fun? But looking back on a time period and, going, and saying, wasn't it great, didn't we have fun? But also look at all this poison water that was being pumped into the soil and look at the strange ways that we grew anyway. Like I think every single character in the Rachel incident acts the way they do and is in the situations that they're in because of what was being pumped into the soil in Ireland of that time. It was the conservatism. It was the sort of Western sexuality. It was the, you know, economic recession. It was the lack of birth control. It was like all these things grew these people. And you really do need time from that. And for me, I, I guess I needed 12 years, you know. 
Rachel uses hindsight to construct more nuanced and mature understandings of her earlier thoughts and feelings. Do you think present day Rachel would still think her English degree is useless? Oh, that's interesting. Do you have an English degree? I'm in my final class, and Haley, who is on oh. here, has an English degree, and Katie is an English professor. So we're kind of uh-huh. you know, laughing a little bit as we ask this. But <laughs> Oh, that's funny. No, I have an English degree as well, and this is another place where me and Rachel's autobiography, Twins, is um, we both have an English degree from the same place, <laughs> um, which is UCC College Cork. And I remember when I, so when I moved here, which is, I live in London, as does Rachel. And um, when I moved here first, I had a huge degree of um, cynicism and, and 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 quite low self-esteem in, in a in a personal sense, but also in a patriotic sense. You know, like it was um, it was amazing to me that all these things I had done in Ireland, like, for example, I worked on my um, local paper when I was like a teenager and I had, you know, profiled important bands who had come through town and I had interviewed them and I had like, I felt at the age of you know 20 or whatever, I felt like I had a quite robust profile and like I had a bit of an online following. Yes, they were people who were from my town and I was writing about like pubs I was at and, but it was still people were reading. And then I moved to London and I, um, you know, showed people my portfolio and my, my resume and all this. And London is obviously incredibly insular and incredibly elitist. And I was amazed to discover and and heartbroken to discover that none of my experience counted for anything because it was Irish experience and therefore um, seen as intrinsically backwater and intrinsically parochial and sort of funny. And I I didn't think it was funny. I had taken myself and the assignments quite seriously and it was quite heartbreaking. And so I learned to be um, quite dismal about both my writing and also the English degree that I got from a very ordinary university where I had nonetheless been lit up intellectually, you know, and I feel like um, for years I pretended like my English degree was a waste of time, but the older I get, the more I understand how it serves me. And particularly I, I did English with an under, with a minor in sociology. And it's a, it's a huge part of how I make a living and see the world. Like I have a podcast called Sentimental Garbage which is a cultural criticism podcast about um, stuff that we regard to be trashy. And my entire basis for deconstructing work, I learned in those sociology and English classes in that regular, regular university that's never going to be famous. And I'm really grateful for that. And also, this is different to the experience in America. It was unbelievably affordable. It was such affordable schooling. It was, I think, at that point, it was a couple of grand a year, you know? Any, you know, anyone can go to university for a couple of grand a year, you know, like that's, that's incredible. (laughs) Like, and I'm very grateful to it. And I don't feel like my understanding of text is lesser than my friends who went to Oxford or Cambridge. You know, I also think James didn't think Rachel's degree was useless. I was struck by something he said during one of their three fights. He argued... (laughs) These little graces you've picked up from your family, from university, they mean something. Hearing Homer and knowing when someone doesn't mean Simpson, knowing what part of the animal pate comes from, it all adds up. It all means something. What do you think James saw in Rachel's opportunities that was valuable that he didn't think was an option for himself? I'm so glad that you highlighted that scene because it's one of my favorite in the novel um, because what's interesting about Rachel is, you know, she's, again, had this upper class upper middle class um, background, but her parents 
have lost all their money. So she has that important distinction that we all must learn at some point in our lives, the difference between broke and poor. So she is broke. She is, she has no money and she, because it's the recession and there's so few jobs going for graduates, as far as she's concerned in her very narrow purview, she has no future. Um, she thinks there's never going to be a job for her or, or whatever. James, meanwhile, comes from an, a very working class background. Uh, I mean, not, not even working class, he comes from poverty. And then by a kind of a stroke of dumb luck when he was about 13, I think his mother marries a rich farmer and he's English and they move to Ireland. And it's like, it's like a, a, a stroke of dumb luck. And so now his mum is quite novu riche and she's got lots of gold jewellery and like she's, you know, loves her new life. But it also, it, that doesn't change who James is or how he grew up or the way he runs through the world and the way the world identifies him, which is as like a kind of like, the way the world sees Rachel is that she's sort of a bookish, you know, put together young woman who's probably going places. And the way the world sees James is like, yeah, he's kind of gobby and chatty and camp. And he's kind of always going to work behind the till in the shop and always going to be pulling pints and that kind of person who's there to be a side character. And and James understands this because he's got, I think, incredibly high EQ but Rachel doesn't because she thinks of James as being like, like Jimmy Stewart or something. Do you know what I mean? She thinks he's like a, like a, she thinks she lives with like a famous actor, you know, in that way that people do, you know? You know, you mentioned twinning, you know, similar circumstances between you and the narrator. And then there were, yeah. you know, there were other doubling moments in the book. There were two Jameses, Devlin and Carrie. Yes. You know, the way Rachel as a narrator sometimes confuses her own memories with Jameses or even other, with other yeah. Irish women. Why is this, you know, slippage of identity or memory so crucial to the book? That's so interesting. I hadn't even thought of that as being a, yes, she does often confuse her memories with other people's memories. And um, with, with the thing with the Jameses I found very funny because um, I remember I read Maeve Binchy's Circle of Friends um, a few years ago. I remember thinking it was so confident that there was two Sean's in the book and one of them was, Sean, Sean, who works in the shop, and one of them was Carmel's Sean, who's she's Carmel's going out with Sean, and that's how they were they referred to, like Shop Sean and Carmel Sean. And I was like, oh, that's so real. That's the, like that's so how people are and how people talk. So I loved the idea of having two Jameses, and it served a great purpose in in setting out the stall of how this three legged stool works, which is, you know, Rachel meets James Carey for the first time outside of a pub bombing a cigarette which is how everyone meets everyone when they're 20 and uh she says like oh you know what's your name and he says james and she says oh well, i already have one of those and um to her she, she's being very witty i think but it sets out this sort of dynamic where he's always the other james emotionally as well as physically and everything else you know and so she thinks that carrie is this person who doesn't care about her but really it, it carrie feels like Rachel doesn't really care about him. And in terms of the slipping of identity, it's, I think part's part of the reason why Rachel is so drawn to James is that he is so clearly defined and sharply drawn. And she, I think, feels like a mystery to herself. She's like murky even to herself. It's like why I think she's quite drawn to the idea of um, sleeping with her college professor because it just seems like the kind of thing a heroine in a novel does, you know? And She's desperately looking for things that might help her define her own humanity, you know? 
Yeah, I mean, she she does keep readers on their toes. She identifies herself as the main character at some points, but at others, you know, she's identifying herself as a supporting or even a background character. Is she meant to be a kind of unreliable narrator or perhaps a resistant narrator, you know, given that the first line is, it was never my plan to write any of this? Yeah, she, um, yeah, I think there's there's many places, without giving spoilers, where she um, observes her own unreliableness, where she'll often say, like, she'll, she'll look back on a very traumatic time where she thought somebody was being awful to her. And then she'll kind of say, but was it like that or did it just feel that way? And also, does it matter if the result was the same, which is that I then did this, you know? And um, I mean, it's, you know, it's very, gets that kind of those sort of universal feelings of why we make art in the first place, which is that we're so desperate to put our reality into the world, you know? Like our our, our personal realities are always subjective and and it's the great sort of, you know none of us are can get over that can we <laughs> like it's it, we we can't get over the fact that we can go to a dinner party with our you know husband and and that he might have a totally different experience and remember it differently and and I feel like making art in the first place is an attempt to get everybody to see the world your way and yeah I think I think yeah she's terribly unreliable but I think very frank about her own unreliability you know, as I mentioned, I first became aware of this book in late 2022, and I started reading an advanced copy then. And I think I, I, in one night, I was able to read 93 pages before I had to read something where I had an author interview the next day or something. So when I got back to it a couple weeks ago, you know, I had both the the book that I would read in front of me, but then like on, on a run or a walk or a drive, I would start playing the audiobook because I had access to the early audio. Oh, that's cool. And so what's funny, though, is once I had that advantage of an Irish accent in my ear, it almost became a different book to me because really? I could hear How the, so? Tell me. I could hear, you know, the cadence or the, the intonation or, um, you know, the, the jokes. They were funny before. But to hear to hear her say, what do you think of a charity or something? I mean, it just it, it yeah. just it was different. And so I'm wondering what might American readers miss if we're reading it and not familiar with the cadence or inflections of Irish speakers? Oh, that's so interesting. I mean, obviously, I can never answer because I'm not American. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know. Um, hmm. I think what's interesting, uh, I think there's a understanding of Irish people at the moment as being quite serious, <laughs> which is weird i think um you know like the banshees him in a sheeran and all that kind of stuff I, I i feel like um there's an understanding of us that work you know witty but sort of mordant or something you know like um or morbid but like i think the way that people talk in rachel all the characters speak to each other and the way irish people speak to each other in general and the way you know that the reason that we communicate the way we do is like you know, we, we come from a country that didn't have an industrial revolution and didn't have anything to do for a really long time, except for prey and farm. And the way we talk is to sort of amuse one another. And uh, which sounds like I'm being very like, I don't know, anthropological by the place that I'm from. But I do love it that every time I'm home in Ireland that like nobody wants to settle for saying an ordinary thing in a boring way, you know, like everyone's like looking for their own spin on how they can say that the weather outside isn't too nice you know but, it's like, but they'll just find something crazy to say um instead and I sort of love that and like 
I don't know. I I, I just I I want them to read all the dialogue with a bit of lightness and with the sense that these two people, even when they're communicating boring information, they just want to make you laugh. You know. Well, they did. I laughed through. The whole thing. <laughs> it, was, it was funny. I loved that it was funny, but it was. It was so it was packed with such nuance and, you know, serious themes that it was just a complete package. So now oh, before I wrap this up, is there anything that you want to talk about that I haven't asked? Um, I, I would be interested, actually, um, what you thought in terms of like you, you really made me think with that question of <laughs> what, what, what would American writers miss? Like, what do you what do you think that American writer, American readers rather might miss when reading it as opposed to? I don't think they'll miss much, but they might miss, you know, here's here's the thing. And maybe it's because of the way I was uh, I was consuming it when I was reading and I would I just would find myself smiling when I was listening. I would laugh out loud. So I don't know oh, if there's wow. a difference there or if it's just like I said, if it was just the way I was consuming it or if if really hearing the the cadence and the. Um, yeah, the accent just really made the made everything hit, you know, more Does squarely. Does it feel like a very foreign country to you? No, I'm curious. No. Okay. I mean, I've never been to Cork. I've never been to Ireland. Mm. Um, but it feels like we've in the United States, we've interviewed quite a few, not a, quite a few, but more Irish authors in the last year or two than mm. ever. I don't know if we're finally getting access to works or I don't know. Mm. It's fascinating, isn't it? It yeah. really is. Mm. But we love them. <laughs> uh, it's great. I was on to talking to a radio producer um, earlier today and I'm due to go on the show, but she was like, oh, we need to talk about something that isn't Irishness because we've had too many Irish authors on recently and it's beginning to look like we're like playing favorites kind of thing which I totally get but it's just we're just making we are putting out a lot of books and they're doing very well internationally it's very nice <laughs> I think you should talk about that then <laughs> that was Caroline O'Donohue author of the book The Rachel Incident which was published by Knopf Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR podcast network our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson our editor is Haley Krausen our producers are Haley Krausen and Katie Lanning. Welcome to the team, Katie. And our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay. <laughs>